have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. The friends will be along in just a few moments. I am so excited this week. It's fall. I, I, it's my favorite season. This is the season I was born in. I'm, I'm sitting here in my studio, and it's a little bit colder than it should be, but I'm all wrapped up in my raccoon Kigurumi, and I'm recording this, and I guess that is maybe a little too much information for some of you, maybe not enough. It's, it's a raccoon Kigu, so, you know, just picture my, my bearded face in a raccoon Kigurumi. Uh, I guess I should comment on something current. Uh, Spider-Man's still in the Marvel MCU. The the yay. He Sony was gonna take him back, and then they didn't, and it's just millionaires arguing in the press. I guess I don't look. What I'm saying is Marvel. Let me write a movie. I think I think I could knock one out of the park. I, there, I've commented on something in the current cultural zeitgeist. Now let us speak of it no more. On a more personal note, I am a college student again. It's super weird. I will probably be updating all of you on that as the months go by, but I am in the history department now at Western Washington University, and I'm really glad that I have this podcast because it's a place where I get to be creative and on a slightly different level than... Uh, being in school. I'm already writing tons of papers and things like that for school. So to get to have this place where I can just come and create and share art with you folks is fantastic. Also, if you, you know, have listened to all of the back episodes of this and you want more strangely, go listen to my other podcast, Pilot House with my friend Sarah Shea. We just had an episode come out this week and I'm really proud of it. It's really, really fun to get to make a podcast like that with a dear pal. So uh, go listen to Pilot House. Anyway, uh, let's get on with the show. We've got a very Shakespearean show for you for our first show of October, so uh, here we go. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Can I start over? No? That's fine. I'll do it. Octopus. This aptly named Klezmer Octet is just all kinds of wonderful. Eight might seem like a lot of people for a band, but each member feels integral to the often complex tunes. I mean, come on, any band that has two trombones must have a good reason, right? Their arrangements crackle with energy even as they reinterpret old tunes we've all heard a million times. It's impossible not to move your body when they play their rendition of Miserloo. Full disclosure, I might be biased as I met these folks at a folk festival a few weeks back and we ended up playing an impromptu show together. But seriously, there is almost no higher endorsement from me than to share a stage with someone. You can find their music at octopus1.bandcamp.com. That's octopus with a K and the number one. If you're looking for a bumping dance band, a folksy band outside the normal, or one of the best klezmer bands you'll hear all year, do yourself a favor, folks. Give these musicians a listen. This is my chat with Emily Carding, and I have to be completely honest, this was one of the most 
nerve wracking chats for me to do because this was somebody I didn't know. I had gone and seen two performances by Emily. Emily is this incredible powerhouse actor who does these solo performances of Shakespeare. So uh, a few years ago, Emily did a rendition of Richard III. And at this year's Edinburgh Fringe, I got to see a show called Quintessence, which is an adaptation of bits of different Shakespeare kind of through the mold of uh, sort of a future AI. So there's this robot uh, creature named Ariel uh, telling, teaching the, the new young human race how to be emotional using Shakespeare and all kinds of other stuff happens. It's an incredible show. And I also saw a show called Caliban's Codex, which was a solo performance where Emily played Caliban and told the story of the Tempest from Caliban's perspective. It's just fantastic. It was sort of like a kind of a Frankenstein's monster or a kind of a golem, kind of a sympathetic, very physical performance of this surprisingly erudite creature. And so it's just it was nerve wracking to get to sit down with someone who had done such fantastic work that I really respected. And I hope you enjoy our chat. We get all kinds of weird. We talk about some really esoteric subjects and I just had a blast. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Emily Card. Uh, hey, sorry, edit bay strangely here. I am in the middle of editing this episode and I realized that my interview with Emily Carding is one of the batch where I was still learning how to use my portable recorder. I'm so sorry about the audio on this. I've done everything I could to clean it up. I think the chat is really good and I hope you folks enjoy the chat. That's a, that's a Scottish expression. People say like, oh, he gives good chat, which is weird. I don't know why I said that in an Australianish accent. I'm pan-global today. Just, all right, here we go. I'm sitting here with Emily Carding. We are backstage in the Sweet Grass Market Number 2 Theater. There are, a show just finished. There's another show coming in here in a little bit, and we managed to kind of sneak some time to chat so it's lovely it's like a blanket fort yeah it's a, i like it <laughs> i i feel like all of the the black box theaters that sweet puts up are kind of like blanket forts because it's just mm. sort of like they put the it's like that like tinker toy lego sort of like bar system and then they hang curtains on it with zap straps and it's just uh, zip ties and it's yeah. just great so you've worked at sweet for a couple years now because i I've seen you before this year. Yeah, I've been around for a bit, but I feel like I've been around at Sweet for longer than I have. I think I've done more at Brighton than I have at Edinburgh. So I was in Edinburgh with Sweet last year with Hamlet and Experience, mm-hmm. and then I'm back again at, at Novato this year with Quintessence and Caliban. But mostly my Sweet involvement has been in Brighton because my previous Edinburgh venues have been various different places. So, you do one-woman shows? Oh, well, I'm known for doing Mm one-woman shows, especially at Fringe, because it's, well, I mean, it's, the concepts have been good, but also practically it's easier, because you're not having to pay anybody else or be dependent on anybody else's schedule, so then you can tour it afterwards easily, and, um, but yes, I've become known for that um, ever since I did uh, Richard III, a one-woman show. Mm -hmm which was, was quite successful and still tours. And then 
It's like, ooh, Wonder Woman shows. It's a thing I can do. Let's do more of those. So you you do a lot of Shakespeare. Do yeah. lot of Shakespeare. <laughs> What 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 and one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you on this podcast was mm-hmm. I saw the two shows that you're in this year, the um, Calvin's Codex and Quintessence, mm-hmm. and they're both very uh, interesting takes on sort of material that I feel like a lot of us have you know we kind of feel like we've seen, mm-hmm. and then there are these different um, takes. Is it like? What am I getting at exactly? Sometimes I get a little lost in the weeds. Uh, no, that's but th- right. this idea of uh, of reinterpreting something we've all seen before mm. is is that challenge particularly attractive to you, or are you you just love Shakespeare and you want to do it however it happens? So the two and um, pre previous to this, mm-hmm. um, the shows that I've done with Bright Theatre are about making those characters accessible to the audience and bringing the audience into the story. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've not seen these ones, but, but both Richard III and Hamlet and Experience are both, are both quite different in the way that that audience participation is worked. The audience are playing characters in it, and it's not like clowning audience participation where you're brought up right. for a bit and then you go away again and you're, you're back in the audience. Right. You're in that the whole thing, and you're mm-hmm. that character throughout. And, and in those, it was about making it as simple and as accessible and as easy to understand and about connecting with the audience and bringing Shakespeare to life for them. This year's show is very esoteric. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different approach. Um, and Caliban's Codex, of course, I didn't write. So although I, I'm performing that, and um, it was a creative collaboration with, with John Knowles, um, the writer, when we were creating the show. So all the movement and everything is all my choice, but the words are his and the concept is, is his. And I, I, I think that you need to already know The Tempest, really, to thoroughly appreciate what he's done with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very different approach, which wouldn't necessarily be my standard approach, but I love right. playing it, and it's very juicy, and I to completely immerse myself in, in that mm-hmm. character in the moment and bring all that physicality to it, and, and basically break myself. I mean, I don't think I'm as fit as I look. Uh, I don't know whether this was, it was you I said this to the other day. I think it was your friend um, who's doing the apocalypse songs. Mm-hmm. I said, all, all, all of this stuff with the squats and, and, and being down um, on my toes and everything, I'm, I'm not that fit, but I am stubborn. And if I think something's going to look good <laughs> and work for that character and, and give me a certain amount of tension, which will then convey in the intensity of the performance, I will make that happen and I'll just suffer and I'll just sit and rub my thighs for an hour afterwards. You know? Right. Um, <laughs> and quint- quintessence, again, very different from my previous work, and I think, although a lot of the same themes are covered, mm-hmm. very different from Caliban. Um, because I had a different intention setting out. I wanted to tell a philosophical story. I wanted to look at human nature. I wanted to break down the to be or not to be because I'd spent a year playing Hamlet in, right. I think, three different versions. I wanted to break down that what, what is this quintessence of dust and look at the to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy and look at it from a very outside point of view. Um, the, the original spark for that uh, was f- uh, from a creative call-out by the Science Museum mm-hmm. um, who wanted something for their Frankenstein festival. And uh, so the guest spent about three days coming, come on, it's not just AI as Frankenstein you've got something more original than that and then the twist came when the, I put the pieces together and was like okay so humanity creates AI that's not the end of that Frankenstein story what right. if 
the AI of humanity dies out and then the AI is left to then, in turn, recreate humanity. So the created becomes the creator. How do they then understand what humanity is? And it gives you an opportunity from an outside perspective, rather than from a human perspective, to look at what humanity is and what makes us human and how we've got to where we are in the world and how can we fix that before it gets to that point. That was a big answer. That was a, it was a big answer to a, a big and incredibly vague question. And that's, <laughs> I, that's what I love. I, that's, you know, that's why I like to keep this sort of informal. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but that physicality that you mentioned, it's one of the things that impressed me a lot about Caliban's Codex is I do a very physical show where I'm jumping up and down for an hour and, and like throwing things and juggling and doing all this stuff. And to see the commitment to that character physicality in, as Caliban, where you never sat down and you never stood up all the way. It just kept that character like in a very, like, like almost like a box. Like the, the physicality was like a box that the character was trapped in almost. And it was just like fantastic to see. Thank you. And you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> And it's interesting um, the way you talk about the process of creating that uh, that show because the the writer is writing the words, but you are in conversation with the words, creating the physicality, which is certainly informing the words. I would assume, kind of as a as an interaction. You also had a delightful ad lib. Uh, I think it was an ad lib. Was that? Was you, were you in the one where the phone went off? I was. Yes, that was an ad lib. <laughs> There's not many opportunities to ad lib in Caliban. Right. It's not in in Richard the Third because um, the audience playing the other characters and they don't have anything scripted, but they sometimes choose to ad lib with me. I ad lib a lot, mm-hmm. and I've been wandering around the venue um, as Ariel, my other character, the AI character from Quintessence, and just ad libbing with people. So I really enjoy the opportunity to ad lib when I can. Caliban's Codex, because it's bit really a poetic piece mm-hmm. and quite dense doesn't often present opportunities yeah. for ad-libbing so I, I love it when things like that happen so you can yeah, when it's timed right where you can just drop it in yeah because you were talking about like I think you were talking about the island you were saying things like about like I hear the wind and the trees mm. rustle and things and then the foam went off and you said there are many strange sounds on this island well, it was the it was a quote from the tempest yeah this island is full of strange noises or yeah it just came into my head and then just carried on beautiful um, thank you it's the, it's the kind of thing that at a fringe show something like that happens and and you're like I bet it's just part of the show that like they have a phone go off at that moment every day <laughs> no <laughs> no oh um, my goodness but I, I love it when those little moments happen because that's one of the joys of, of live theatre isn't it we've gotten so used to screens and recordings and and even watching theatre on screens now, because mm-hmm. a lot of people can't afford to go to the National, maybe they'll see a National production at the cinema. Right. But it's all very predictable, it's all very controlled. So those moments that are responding to the audience in the moment is something I really love. Quintessence doesn't give me any opportunity to do that, but it's it, it's a different idea again. It's that concept of a controlled environment. Right. And it, it's something that in the two shows that I've seen you do and you're still talking you're still viewing it as an interactive experience even if it is very kind of set back and I I love that one of the things that I while I was growing up and and even into until now that has made Shakespeare less interesting to me is it generally 
there, part of the world where I come from, it's very stolidly like we are we are up on stage and we are here and you, and hey, we pretend. That. You may as well be watching it on a screen. Exactly. And oh, I see. <laughs> it's like when you go to the RSC or the National, and it's all very good, and they're all very good, and they're all getting paid a lot more than I'll ever get paid. <laughs> and I'm like. And sometimes I think I'm frustrated because I can't get seen by these places. But then I think that's actually that's not my job. What I'm, what I do, the work that I make, is about directly connecting with my audience and giving them an experience that they will not get anywhere else. And in the cases of some of my shows, they're getting a very unique and very individual to them experience. Mm -hmm. For example, if you came to Hamlet and you were playing Claudius or Horatio, you're experiencing that play from that character's perspective. You might be experiencing some of it from being dead on the floor. Mm -hmm. And you've got that completely unique experience, which is molded by the energy that that audience creates coming together as a group energy. It's completely unique to you. Well, you can't get that at the National or no. RSC. I'd still very much like to work for them had I the opportunity. That the, the, the money would be nice. Um, but yeah. Yeah. The, that is such a thing that I, I see so much of at the, all the fringes I do around the world are people who are passionate about, I guess, I don't want to sound demeaning, but like odd little things. Hmm. There's that show on at, uh, over at Novotel, the other sweet venue, uh, um, something like The Place You Have Forgotten Still Remembers You, that uh, immersive yeah. theater piece. And it's, it's one audience member and it's very one-on-one -on -one interaction. I got to go see it a couple of days ago. Oh, and it's, how was it? It was lovely. You know, it was, it was just a, a nice, sweet, gentle experience which I kept waiting for someone to like pop out from behind the curtain naked with an air horn or something and it, it just didn't happen they, they were just lovely and gentle the whole time and they left me feeling refreshed but it's like you look at their show and they're doing you know they're, the post, I was like yeah. one and one how does that work how what's the financial model for this there, like, on a practical level how does this work there's none they're just passionately devoted Aww. to making something like that happen and you know that that, in a way, it's like in the the quixotic nature of that is so inspiring because mm. it's just like you're never gonna buy a house <laughs> doing one-on-one -on -one shows for ten quid, like at all. I'm not gonna buy a house doing what I'm doing, renting forever. Uh, speaking of, of things that people are passionate about, I only know this because I overheard you talking to our venue manager JD. But you're <laughs> writing a book. I have been writing a book for a little while now. My pu my, my publisher is getting very, very patient with me. Uh huh. Um, yeah, so I've already written a few things. Um, I've got a few tarot decks and mm -hmm. a book on fairy stuff that I already have out there. Uh, so this is for the same publisher that I did um, my book Fairy Craft for. Mm -hmm. And essentially, I, th I didn't think it'd be this difficult. So it's just an expansion of my thesis. I thought my thesis for my I did an MFA in staging Shakespeare, and my thesis was on the practical application of the esoteric knowledge that's in Shakespeare. But it was very much from a, a theatre practitioner point of view. So it was, how could I take this Renaissance philosophy stuff about the, the, the five elements, about the planets and um, the Kabbalah, and all of this stuff, and put that into a training system for actors. So that was my thesis. Now, my publishers that I'm writing this book for are more your pagan magical practitioners mm -hmm, audience. Mm -hmm. So it's more about bringing theatre into your magical practice. I think it would still be interesting for theatre practitioners too. 
Um, but it's looking, it's looking at the magical, esoteric content of Shakespeare. So all the Renaissance philosophy things that I've just said, but also here's the stuff about ghosts. This is what the ghosts in, in Hamlet, in Julius Caesar, in Macbeth, in Richard III, this is what they mean, this is what they meant at the time. This is how it all reflects um, the world that Shakespeare was living in, um, the folklore, the fairies, the, uh, the herb law that's in there, curses, blessings, all of the magical stuff mm -hmm. that's in there. And then each chapter has practical exercises, which are much more, I don't know how much you know about this world, so excuse, excuse me for using terms that people might not be familiar with. Um, but we're looking at the early modern world, obviously, with mm -hmm. Shakespeare and, and that Renaissance magic. And then the practical exercises are much more like postmodern magic, right. so chaos magic, mm -hmm. um, and, and things that modern magical practitioners on, it, it, they can come in on a beginner's level than do. So you're not necessarily going to be using John Dee's magical system. Like a, there are other books for that. Right. This is, let's look at what we've just learned about in this chapter and how can we use Shakespeare's words or Shakespeare's ideas in uh, his a tarot reading based, uh, a tarot spread based on the different ghosts and what the, the ghosts are saying, for instance. Um, here's a divination method you might want to try by choose a speech that is about what you want to ask your question about, cut up all the words and draw one as your answer for mm -hmm. your question. Things like that, or little rituals, guided meditations and so on. But the, the bulk of it is mm -hmm. looking at the magical content that's in Shakespeare's work. That sounds amazing. I, it's big the, work and I'm a year late with it. <laughs> the, 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 that, that interplay between magic mm. and theater, or just even artistic creation in general, mm. is, is something that I've been very interested in for years. Uh, so it's really, it's really interesting to hear you talk about it. Uh, one of the things that I've always found fascinating is that, like, I... I study a lot of like history of Siberia and um, sort of the, the um, nomadic peoples of, of like northern Eurasia and how I think like some of that shamanism is very much connected to on down to the modern practice of, of like solo performer performance art and sometimes group performance art that you know I'm up there in front of a room full of people going we're all going to shout at the top of our lungs at, a, at the same moment and if we all do it like we all get goosebumps and it's like it's, we feel something and you know people talk about like early shamanism as strictly religion but it's like I, I, I say this all the time this is a personal hobby horse but I just I know that all the people in the village are gathered and the shamans doing the rain dance and waving the stick and and one villager leans to the other and goes you know he had a better stick last night. <laughs> you know it's like the, yeah. there was an entertainment component yeah, yeah, yeah. of that and 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 I think that 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 one of the, the sad things in modern existence is that we've compartmentalized so many things hmm. because of, I think, maybe scheduling and things like that where it's just like, this is entertainment time and this is work time and this, is, this time is serious or this time is funny. You know, like we, we put these things, I mean, even when we look at shows at Fringe, it's about like, this is a cabaret show or this is theater. Oh, you have singing in your theater. Now it's a musical, you know, like, hmm. um, but that that interplay between magic and sort of the the art of creating or influencing the world around you or interacting with it on a spiritual level I think is is inherently theatrical hmm. because in theater what are we doing but invoking people places things that have not or 
maybe used to or may someday or whatever exist. There's there's there are things that are not real, but yet they become real. Yeah. In that space. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you said you wrote your thesis on applying the esoteric bits of Shakespeare to the staging of Shakespeare? Yes, I did. And I, I was going through a divorce at the time, so it wasn't as well-developed as I would have liked it mm-hmm. to have been. Um, but I'm very interested in working with actors on developing their inner world, and as a result of that, the audience's inner world, even if it's not something they're consciously aware of happening. So you're affecting them energetically, and you're consciously affecting them energetically and you're connecting consciously, energetically with that space. Um, so the very basic thing that I do, even just in, in Fringe, when you don't have a whole lot of time to warm up and do things beforehand, mm-hmm. is I do an exercise called the Kabbalistic Cross, mm-hmm. which draws energy down from above into my crown, then down through to Malkut, the foundation, down into the earth, and then across so I'm centering myself in that space and I'm drawing the space into me and I'm a part of that space and we, we are then connected. So then when the, the audience are coming into my energetic space when they enter, so they know they should have a feeling that they can trust that I've got them in that space and that they can go through whatever, I think, an initiatory process during, during a theatrical experience, um, if, if that makes sense. It, it does. So, uh, so that's one very, very small part of it and the Kabbalah... Um, was part of the spiritual philosophy that was going on at, in Shakespeare's time and there are elements of it in his work you can find. Mm-hmm. Um, the the four elements and the fifth element, quintessence or ether, are there in his work. You can look at how characters are sometimes compared to the elements. Um, Gertrude describes Hamlet as being mad as the sea and wind when one when both contend which is the mightiest. You know. um, those four elements and the qualities that they represent are an inherent part of that work. And it just gives an actor or a magical practitioner a greater understanding of what's happening in those works um, when, when you understand the, the world that it's, it's coming from and the philosophy that it's coming from, um, if, if, that, if, if that makes sense. So, so yeah, I was very interested in developing those ideas of making an actor aware of the elements within their own body and then what the elements, how the elements might work in their character's body, um, the different archetypes involved, uh, what planet that character might be ruled by, and then you can consciously invoke that planet as a magical exercise. You can invoke that planet or invoke that element in yourself. For example, as Caliban, I have the element, the alchemical symbol for Earth on my face. Right. Because Caliban, in the alchem, and the Dempsey is the most alchemical of Shakespeare's plays, Caliban represents Earth. Right. Um, Ariel is fire. Perhaps Miranda is water. Um, so to say, Ariel is fire. Pro- uh, Ariel is air. Prospero is the is the fire. Caliban is Earth. And he's described as, he's even described as thou earth. Right. It's just blatantly there in your face, the, the alchemy of that. And it's also that kind of idea of like, you know, there's the things about Caliban being like half formed or, or almost, um, which is mm. like also like kind of the, the, like in the Torah with like being formed of clay and yeah. the, the dust breathed up and everything like that. He's, he's all. The island. Yeah. So even if you if you dig out his backstory a bit, as we do in Caliban's mm-hmm. Codex, you, his mother wasn't a native to the island. Right. She was banished there, but he was born on the island. 
and he considers it very much his home. So it's almost as if, because he's only half human, his his father supposedly is the is Setabos, a sort of a demonic god. Which, if you if you again if you I'm getting I'm going quite deep here, but if you dig into the the origins of this god Setabos that everybody says, oh yes, the god Setabos from actually is just from travel accounts of the time. It may have actually just been made up by people who were discovering. Um, the New World, mm-hmm. and they made up exotic stories about encountering men who were twice the height of a normal right. man and worshipped this god Setebos. There's no archaeological evidence for Setebos. But anyway, he's, a, he's only half human. Um, you can almost imagine that his other half is actually the Earth itself, mm-hmm. you know, something primal um, that, that, he's coming, that he's coming from. So that's, that's a really important part of Caliban's codex, that sense that he's the he's really almost the voice of Earth speaking. And he's described throughout the Tempest as you know, as as looked down on. He's he's looked down on for being Earth and for being the land and for being the untamed wild mm-hmm. spirit. Um or as some people interpret it, that post colonial idea of the well we're looking down on the native, we're right. the, the uncultured native. Um and, and Caliban's Codex is giving him that voice that he doesn't have, and then and and but putting it in the modern context of the Earth saying, "What well, look what you're doing! Look what you're doing to the Earth!" I think I've gone off a massive tangents here. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, that's <laughs> why I do that. You know, there's no. It's not like there's specific time limits on a podcast, and you know, yeah. you've got to get the sound bite because it's not about the sound bite. I feel like. Um, in future I want to have these podcast chats be a little more scheduled because like I feel like it's the antidote to what we're all running around doing mm. where we're like we have to pitch ourselves in five seconds to I someone know, who that's it go running up to people on the street and say two new solo shows inspired by Shakespeare and climate change yeah <laughs> new writing inspired by Shakespeare so I'm, I'm I, I have to ask you're wearing sort of like a, a Star Trek themed uh, outfit with sort of accident. I mean, that does make it, doesn't it? Yeah, the emblem makes it definitely very Star Trek. Yeah. Um, and on your flyer, you've got the quote that uh, uh, quintessence is almost a Star Trek episode. That was my favourite quote from any review ever. Yeah, that was from Fringe Guru. Bless Richard Stamp for that. <laughs> I said, yes, that is my favourite. I'm putting that on my flyers. And that show really, it does feel like kind of a Star Trek thing. Thanks. Um, just the... And it, that was never intentional, but Star Trek's been this huge part of my life from being a kid. So I didn't realise that that influence was... Ne- it wasn't a conscious influence. And then when he said that, I was like, oh yeah, my, my geek influence is finally showing. I'm finally getting to stretch my sci-fi muscles a bit. It's my first piece of sci-fi writing, and I just... I'm so pleased that people are comparing it to Star Trek, which is basically one of my favourite things of all time. It's the fact that I can bring Star Trek and Shakespeare together. It's like, yes. Because they've always coexisted, in a sense. A lot of the classic Star Trek episodes were taken from Shakespeare titles. Shakespeare's always sort of been interwoven. I don't think people realise. And then, of course, you've got Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard, great Shakespearean actor. They'll always bring Shakespeare into it, because then you get Patrick Stewart reads on Shakespeare. So that that connection's always been there, I think perhaps because the two are, inher- are in they're inherently philosophical things about human nature. Yeah, well, I think I I'm I'm always surprised when people look down on genre fiction. 
because but those are stupid people who yeah. are wrong. <laughs> exactly, it just, because I th- I think the the most interesting stories about human beings are, are when they are in extremis, hmm. and I think that with genre fiction you can you can create the the most extreme situations to get at the heart of human failings or foibles or whatever in a way that when you're recreating say a piece of actual history there's almost like the inevitability of retelling a a true story can affect that yeah the failings and foibles for sure but what Star Trek did was take put humanity in the 23rd century exploring space as an opportunity to show what we could become. Gene Roddenberry gave us a, a utopia. I really wanted to write a utopian piece. It did end up as a dystopian piece, but I wanted to write a utopian piece because I thought we're living in dystopia now. We really need to return to utopian sci-fi to give us some, some hope, something to aspire to. Gene Roddenberry with Star Trek did that. He gave us a, a future full of hope where we could coexist with races from different planets, let alone our own planet, and and explore and make peaceful contact and not be massive dicks all of the fucking time. Um, then Deep Space Nine came along and got very political and was juicy. Next Gen was even more utopian. It's very 90s. Um, but... And then the, the things that, that's happening, that are happening with Discovery, I think it's an incredibly exciting show. So Star Trek's about, about hope and showing you the best of human nature in trying circumstances, I think. I haven't quite done that with Quintessence, so I feel it's unfortunately picking out on a lot of the negative qualities. But it, but it is saying all of these things that we think are terrible about humanity, if we look at it from the outside, are also the they're just the shadow side of what's good and you need both it's that i don't know how much of a geek you are i'm yeah. guessing quite a big one but the, the original series episode the enemy within when kirk gets split into good kirk and mm-hmm. bad kirk mm-hmm. they need each other yeah you can't just get rid of the shadow you've got to have both it's yeah it's th- that that idea of of those qual- those components being uh, positive and negative i I, I heard an interview with Ron Perlman, mm. the, um, fantastic uh, actor in makeups, <laughs> and uh, he was talking about he how... He spent his whole career in yeah, prosthetics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he was talking about, like, he, he's been going to therapy or something, and the, the, the thing that he's all about right now is this idea that when y- you need to look inside yourself and find the part of yourself that you despise, mm. the part of yourself that you wish you could cut out and throw into into the ocean or whatever. You need to find that part of yourself and you need to invite it inside and put it in front of the fireplace and wrap it in a warm blanket and give it a hot mug of cocoa and take care of it and learn what that piece of you needs. Mm. Which... That's lovely. Uh, yeah, and it, it's that idea that like the... The, these components of, of ourselves or more broadly of humanity mm. being things that like need to be excised mm. or whatever might actually be critical and important parts. Yeah, exactly. Which is when people, when people get it with quintessence, but 
in, in quintessence they go through this process of, of, with experiments trying to recreate humanity and they don't quite con conform to what they think is going to help humanity to thrive so they just get cast out and then at the end they realise that they need those qualities in order to be able to continue um, no, I, I think I think I've just lost lost my thread, but I, I think <laughs> that's that's exactly it, and that's a lovely idea because so many of us are carrying around an injured child. Yes. And so so many of these, we're just casting out our injured children instead of instead of nurturing them. Because I th I think that if most people look at, not that I'm a psychologist, but if most not that I'm an actor. Um, but if most people really look at those qualities that they dislike about themselves, it will be rooted in some level of neglected child. Their child has been injured or hurt in some way and then sparked off into this feral... Right, it's a, a, a feral thing living like on the other side of the fence that just mm. kind of... Like the dog in the sandlot, just like, mm. it's there. Uh, <laughs> As, as we're kind of getting to the end of this chat, uh, mm. I, one of the big reasons that I wanted to start doing this podcast is I wanted to increase visibility for art and artists that are sort of outside of the mainstream because mm. most of the people I spend time with are the ones doing shows for one person for 10 pounds yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the other <laughs> side of the world. Uh, and, you know, obviously a lot of my listeners can't make it to the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. So are there pieces of art, you know, films or books, things like that, that you would recommend that would sort of touch on the themes that you find to be important in, you know, in artistic creation? I know that's a really broad question, wow. uh, but just sort of asking for recommendations. But Peter Brook, The Empty Space, pops into my head as being, this is what theatre is mm -hmm. about. Read your Shakespeare. Get in there, or well, watch Shakespeare. Actually, go watch it. Um, you know, you find find your thing. Find what inspires you. Don't. It's all very well listening to somebody say, you know, this this has inspired me, and I'm just massively inspired by as as a child Asimov, and then moving forward. Um, fantasy authors as well as lots of esoteric authors and there's a lot of wonderful books if you're interested in magical things I highly recommend um, the Practical Magic series from Avalonia Books the Practical Elemental Magic Practical Planetary Magic just properly do what they say there's like exercises in there that you can learn this stuff without a lot of hoo-ha and nonsense um, the Three Books of Occult Philosophy, which uh, is by Cornelius Agrippa, which was contemporary to Shakespeare, that has magical-wise everything in there, and Shakespeare possibly drew on that. Um, oh, I discovered whilst writing my book in Juicy Research, I discovered that Shakespeare almost definitely had access to the grimoires of the period, because there's stuff in there with, with some of the spirits and the fairies and things that could only have come from the grimoires. That's exciting. So just, just dig deeper, I think, is my advice. Just find something that sparks interest and inspiration in you, and then there's always, there's always a way of digging deeper. I think that's a perfect recommendation. Uh, 
thank you so much thank for you. taking the time. This was absolutely lovely. It's been really delightful. Thank you. So that was my chat with Emily Carding. If you'd like to know more, you can follow Emily on Twitter or Instagram at Emily Carding. E-M-I-L-Y-C-A-R-D-I-N-G. Just like it sounds. Hokey fright. Have you heard about RoboCop? If you grew up in a roughly contemporaneous time to me, you might be forgiven for having a mixed opinion of RoboCop. Even if you've never seen it. Which, until last week, I never had. Something about this film has so deeply penetrated the cultural landscape of film and nerd culture over the last three and a half decades since it's released that I thought I had seen it. Seriously, I could describe numerous scenes, situations, catchphrases, and tropes from Robocop having never seen it. How is that possible? I would argue it's because the film is fantastic. No, really, this film is not only a fantastic cyberpunk action adventure, it's also one of the most tightly written films I've ever seen. This movie has almost no buildup. It immediately gets to the point and never stops once the action ramps up. You learn about most of the characters through organic revelations from their dialogue, and to be honest, there's less of that than you might expect. With the exception of Murphy, the film's protagonist, you learn almost nothing about anyone's backstory, because it's not relevant. The film has also aged better than many of its contemporaries. I think this is due to the conscious creative choices made by director Paul Verhoeven and screenwriters Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner. In particular, Verhoeven's assistance that the two primary female characters not be sexualized. Take Lewis, for example, the officer assigned to be Murphy's partner when he transfers into a new precinct. She is, like her male colleagues, Murphy included, identified only by her last name. She wears the exact same outfit as Murphy and acquits herself well in the field, never becoming the damsel so much as getting into, and out of, scrapes on her own steam. Speaking of rescuing people, even after Murphy becomes the unstoppable cyborg killing machine known as Robocop, she saves his bacon more than once. I'm not saying the film is a perfect example of cultural sensitivity and portrayals of women, it's just got some better bits than you would expect from an 80s action flick called Robocop. Oh man, that title? Robocop? Just, I doubt many of you would be surprised to hear that almost every director in Hollywood at the time turned down the chance to helm this film, most on the merits, or lack thereof, of that title alone. Could you blame them? This film even sounds absurd when someone who has seen it describes it to you. Okay, so a cop in future Detroit is shot a gazillion times by a gang of psychotic criminals and then gets his body put into a futuristic exoskeleton by a corporation with dubious morals. He then fights crime and gets revenge on the guys who mutilated him. But like, there's so much more going on than that. The action scenes are great. The mostly practical effects still look awesome. Special shout out to Phil Tippett's mind-bogglingly good stop-motion work. And the score is to use a word I hesitate to utter as it's been overdone to death, epic. I'll cite one more story example to give you an idea of the extra levels of fantastic going on here. A few years back, the film John Wick received praise for the fact that the title character's wife had died before the story started due to natural causes. Instead of using the tired trope of fridging the wife, do I... Really need to explain fridging? It's it's where they die and the audience is mad about it? I I don't know. 
I only know that term because I saw it. I had to look it up after reading an angry Tumblr takedown of Joss Whedon's entire career. And I mean, I don't like the term that much. I prefer to think of bridging in an Indiana Jones capacity. Uh, God. Never mind. Uh, look, it means the character has no purpose other than to die to motivate the usually male protagonist. <clears throat> John Wick didn't do that. That's the point. Robocop doesn't do that either. Murphy loses his wife and son, it's true, but it happens because after his initial run-in with the bad guys, he is declared legally dead, so the corporation can robocopinize him. So they rightfully have held a funeral for him and gone on with their lives. It's an interesting choice, and one I found pretty dang refreshing, especially considering that this film was from the 80s. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Here's a thought. What's up with all these stories that have no idea where they are going? It seems like everything wants to be a long-running series, often to the detriment of telling anything approaching a satisfying tale. This is something I've been thinking of quite a bit lately, but my thoughts really came into focus when I was watching Robocop. <laughs> Sorry. I'm probably going to be talking about Robocop a lot for the next few weeks. Regardless of any more specific thoughts about content or context, Robocop gets in, tells a tale, and then gets out. There are no loose threads, no dropped subplots, and no extraneous material. It just is. Contrast that with the ongoing nonsense we're ever more accustomed to these days. Let's call them Martinesques. I've created this term in reference to a certain George R. R. Martin owing to his tendency to keep adding more and more details, characters, and situations with no end in sight. I'm sure most of you could, off the top of your head, name half a dozen pieces of media which have thrown a bunch of stuff at the wall and then not delivered. I hear you, Lost fans. We'll get to you. A particular ire is not so much directed at all long-running narratives as it is at the ones with no clear direction. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, notorious for just going on and on and on to the extent that even pointing out its long-running nature is a cliché, might be an example. But I would argue that the MCU has a clear sense of direction and editorial oversight. Even if they change things up along the way or try to claim something as retroactively intentional, things are still being directed by a sense of vision. And on top of that, each individual movie, well, not each individual movie, looking at you, Thor, Dark World, and Avengers Age of Ultron, but a lot of their individual movies stand on their own and can be watched and enjoyed by themselves. They have beginnings, middles, and ends. Contrast that with something like Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy. The books are full of a sense of impending revelation, of the dread of discovery, but they end on a conclusion that is disappointing in the extreme. There's no moment of catharsis, no aha moment. A bunch of weird shit happens and then they're over. The final page seeming to be an attempt at a kind of Cormac McCarthy-like digression into dreamlike philosophizing about acceptance. Whose acceptance? 
the characters for their pointless journey, my own for spending $20 and 31 hours of my time? How does something like this happen? I think it's a result of writers continually adding more and more ingredients without any thought to how those things are going to work together in the final gumbo that will be their story. There is a pretty significant movement in food culture that maintains the fewer ingredients, the better. Why overcomplicate something like a baked salmon when it's perfectly good with a squeeze of lemon and perhaps a little garlic? I think stories are the same way. Going back to the Southern Reach trilogy for a second, Vandermeer introduces interdimensional travel, sentient fungi, secretive extra-governmental agencies, a seance brigade, transhuman transformation into animals, textual information of sentient constructs, and hypnotic control. That's not to say all of those things do not belong in a book together. I actually quite like that catalog, looking at it all written out. But I'm not sure Vandermeer has a clear idea of why they're all in the same story. Instead, many of these concepts come out of left field without any kind of payoff later in the story. I admit it. I'm complaining about the relative plot importance of story elements in much the same way many nerds complain about the power levels of superheroes. How strong is Wonder Woman? As strong as the plot needs her to be. Lost is another great example of this phenomenon. A bunch of people marooned on an island with no way to contact the outside world? What an awesome premise! Modern day Robinson Crusoe's! Crusoe? I stopped watching Lost halfway through the second season. Why? Because of the hatch. The hatch is a metal door in the forest floor of the island discovered by the marooned characters during the first episode. They have fights about it, speculate about the reason for its existence, and what to do about it. The hatch changes everything. It is a sign of not only civilization, but advanced civilization. Season 1 ends with a startling choice made by some of the characters to blow the hatch open to find out what's inside. Intriguing, sure, but hardly a satisfying source of drama because nothing of interest is inside the hatch when they finally do blow it open. And then the show just keeps adding more and more stuff, like a polar bear and a cloud of smoke and five or six factions of new people. I'm just, I'm didn't even watch the show and I'm mad about it. In an interview with series showrunner Damon Lindelof, he talked about writing the pilot of Lost with J.J. Abrams. The hatch was J.J.'s creation. There's gotta be a hatch, J.J. insisted to Lindelof. When asked what's inside, J.J. supposedly replied, who cares? A hatch will be awesome. We'll figure it out later. And then J.J., you know, effed off to go make Star Trek movies or Star Wars movies. He's actually made both. Like, my mother's confusion when I was growing up about Star Wars and Star Trek being basically the same thing is now the reality we live in. Oh, man, that's depressing. Anyway, where was I? Uh, therein lies the problem I'm getting at. I don't mind a story introducing elements as a way of world building, but making something a central element to your narrative with absolutely no idea of how to pay it off just gets annoying. Such choices are all over Lost. The pair of skeletons in the jungle that seem to indicate Adam and Eve-like figures, to make just one more example. I've already mentioned George R. R. Martin as a culprit of this kind of figure-it-out-later writing, but it's not just story elements and concepts George does this with. Go back and read the five currently available books in A Song of Ice and Fire. Wait, don't. I'll save you the trouble. 
Not a single character's arc completes in the five published books. Sure, loads of characters die, but George Yar seems to have every single one of those happen in a random and untimely fashion. I'm not complaining about sudden character death, just the lack of any satisfying narrative resolution. With every passing book, the expectation for character resolution and narrative, narrative resolution gets higher and higher. I would argue Martin has no idea where any of this is going. Don't even get me started on Clive Barker. I love Clive Barker's books. And like him, I love his stuff. But seriously, I don't know if that guy knows how to write an ending either. By my rough estimate, Clive has at least three series of books currently open with no publishing dates in sight for their conclusions. Just so you don't at me, I count Aberat, Galilee, and the Books of the Art as series with promised sequels not forthcoming. This is not a complaint about an author not finishing things. They are more than welcome to do so on their own time and in their own way. This is rather a complaint about narrative satisfaction. I'll present a counterexample. Alistair Reynolds's Revelation Space series. At current count, the series runs six books and 14 pieces of shorter fiction. While the series is long-running and dense, each book and work is a complete tale unto itself. Characters' arcs complete, mysteries are solved, or proved to be unsolvable, and each individual piece has a definite ending. This means each one can be read in any order and provide a satisfying time, good entertainment. The universe continues on. Characters appear in more than one book, sometimes switching roles to act as antagonists to new heroes with differing goals. This last point is great because if you have read more than one story, you end up getting additional context and perspective, but it's never wholly needed to appreciate the narrative at hand. I don't really have a solution to all of this. It's just something I've noticed lately. It's the phenomenon that makes me most disinterested in reading any book with the number one emblazoned on the spine or the words first in the blah blah chronicles on the cover. Some of my favorite bits of entertainment are long-running puffs of nonsense. The MCU, Star Trek, Star Wars, The Golden Compass, The Abortion Series, Ricky Jay's career. And I would be willing to bet most of those things did not have a definite endpoint in mind when they started, but they at least had a thematic idea of direction, a clear and definite direction, and they would resolve things within smaller chunks of time. Ricky Jay did all kinds of stuff that was building towards something, we don't know what it was, but each individual book, performance, and trick gave us a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's all I'm asking for. Oh, I need more coffee. Song of the Week When That I Was and a Little Tiny Boy With Hey Ho the Wind and the Rain, by William Shakespeare. After interviewing Emily Carding about a month ago, I was really excited about Shakespeare, and I was staying with my friend JD in Dundee, and I said to JD, hey, uh, you direct theater, and you're really into theater and stuff. Can you give me a piece of Shakespeare to do something with? I, I don't really know. Just something that you think you'd like to hear me do. And JD immediately said, this song from Twelfth Night. He he just immediately thought of me and this song and was like, do this. So this is When That I Was and a Little Tiny Boy with Hey Ho, The Wind and the Rain. Hey. 
tiny boy with hay. Oh, the wind and the rain, no foolish thing was but a toy for the rain. It raineth every day. Mailbag. I got back to Bellingham just a few days ago and went to my art studio and found this little package here uh, waiting for me, and I'm going to open it. This is from somewhere in Vancouver, Canada. I don't know who it's from. Oh, oh my... Wow, this is, uh, there are, oh my goodness. Okay, so uh, I got this little package, and in the package is a, uh, uh, I don't know if you can hear that. I, I will post a photo of this on Instagram for sure. Uh, it is a, 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 a piranha. A taxidermied piranha on a chain and uh, a, uh, <laughs> where is this money from? Uh, there's some money, sto uh, dinara, so a hundred dinar. Uh, this is money with Cyrillic characters on it, but... Um, I can't. Uh, 
Biograd? Biograd? What, where it uses Dinar? I'm going to look this up right now. This is so cool. No, that can't, it can't be Kuwaiti money. Cause it's, it's, it's got Tesla on it. Serbian. This is Serbian money. 100 dinar from Serbia. And, and Nikola Tesla is the, oh, Sirbidzia. Okay. It's like sort of Cyrillic characters, but there's some other characters in there. So this is a, a, a bill, like a, a bank, like money. And it has Nikola Tesla on it. This is the coolest freaking thing ever. And uh, a, a piranha. Okay. So uh, there's a note in here. And it says, as requested, weird old taxidermy. Check. Spare 100 dinar bill. Check. Yep, spare. How do I have two of these? I've never even been to Serbia. Oh, it says on the note where it's from. Not a convertible currency, alas, but you must admit it's a captivating likeness of Nikola Tesla. Friend, I am a busker. I will figure out how to convert that currency. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm never getting rid of this. I have money with Tesla on it. This is the coolest thing ever. Uh, oh, we've got some questions here. So tell us more about your Balkan brass gigs and resulting tragic hearing loss. Ow. And how is school going? Ah, it's really hard. I, I haven't been in school for eight years and I jumped right in with a couple of upper division courses. I'm taking a 390 and a 401 and there's a lot of, there's so much reading. Like I read a book a week. That's how I'm always able to talk about books on this podcast. But with school now, I'm, I'm reading like four books a week. It's, it's, amazing i'm just like drinking information out of a fire hose it's like an analog internet being shoved in my face it's awesome uh and this other question tells more about your balkan brass gigs and resulting tragic hearing loss i let's see i i don't know for sure that this is where my tinnitus came from but it seems like as good a culprit as any back in 2008 2009 I had just kind of dropped out of real life or, you know, what I thought of as real life back then. And I was touring with circuses and I went on tour with this group called Chautauqua and Chautauqua did a tour called Aqua Chautauqua 2 because they'd done a Chautauqua tour before on the water. And it was a tour, a circus tour on sailboats through the, the Gulf Islands up in Canada. So I live in Bellingham, Washington, which if you look at a map of the United States, Bellingham is in the upper left-hand corner of the lower 48. And then up above Bellingham is Vancouver Island. And between Vancouver Island and the mainland of BC, British Columbia, Canada, is the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, there's a bunch of islands, and some of them are called the Gulf Islands. And so they're islands with names like Salt Spring and Lusquiti and <laughs> island which is where previous podcast guest jory phillips is from uh i'm still not allowed to say the name of her island on the podcast as far as i know anyway uh chautauqua did this tour up there on these boats and i went along and we went to this little tiny island called lesquiti which is overrun with wild sheep and there's a band from lesquiti or at the time there was and they were called the bolting brassicas 
and went on tour with them. And we went all over these islands on these boats and stuff. And there was just one particular night where a bunch of musicians were jamming. I was playing my accordion. The Bolting Brassicas were playing all of their brass. And you know that thing, like, at the rock show, there's the guy who just, like, wants to stand with his face right up in the speaker stack of, like, the booming, like, (laughs) bass. I guess... That kind of bass isn't really at a rock show, but you know, there's just like there's that wall of sound where you feel like you're like enveloped in the sound and it's it's all over your body. I was being that guy while I was playing, but I was just sticking my face right into uh I think it was a baritone saxophone or a bass trombone. I can't remember. It was a big like buh, buh, buh. and I was just I was it felt so good. But ever since then I've kind of had this sort of a ring in in my ears like i i i have tinnitus i don't know for sure if it's from that but that's the loudest thing i've ever deliberately stuck my face next to like i've never been in a a a teleprompter i mean a helicopter i've never um you know i've never really worked like heavy machinery i ran a jackhammer once but i i used ear protection so i really i i don't know i just know that at some point, I listen to something loud, and I'm going to continue to insist that it was uh, jamming with the Bolting Brassicas once about 10 years ago. I, on a side note, the film Baby Driver was something really personally emotional for me to watch. I've, I've never really spoken about this in any kind of a public place, but the movie Baby Driver and its portrayal of what it's like to always have a uh, freaking ringing in your ears was it I get choked up whenever I think of that movie because like that is m- my life like I I play music and I make noise for a living because it distracts me from the the noise that I always have with me it's one of the reasons that I I always have headphones on when I'm like going for a run or riding my bike or whatever is just I just want to not hear that noise uh anyway that is the definition of tmi in answer to your question but uh thank you so much kind listener for this amazing package this was was an incredible thing to come back to my studio to find and 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 thank you so much i i don't really know what to say this is probably one of the coolest things i've ever been sent in the mail Uh, And for those of you listening at home, I will post photos of this. I promise. Thanks so much, folks. That's it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. If you like this podcast, please send me a note in the mail. Uh, It's strangely 1000 Harris Avenue, number 21, Bellingham, Washington, 98225, United States, Planet Earth, Spiral Arm, Milky Way Galaxy, Local Group, the universe if you want to help support this podcast and encourage me to make more of whatever this nonsense is you can head over to patreon.com slash strangely p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash s-t-r-a-n-g-e-l-y if you have thoughts about the podcast or ideas about how i can make it better topics you want me to cover questions you'd like to ask you can send those to me in the mail or you can Get in touch with me via Instagram at I am strangely. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all have a great weekend. Bye. Okay.
can't remember who the comedian was, so I can't credit them. It's one of this year's best fringe jokes. Mm -hmm. To be or not to be a horse rider, that is equestrian. <laughs> oh, damn it. I can tell I've been here too long. I think that is really funny. It's, I think it's really funny. Oh, God, it's and, so good. And also, it's the one joke I could remember, and I'm like, it actually ties in with what I've been talking about. And I was, and I was like, thank you, brain. Thank you, higher self. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> I... Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.